Wilder Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would, please take out your Bible and turn in it in the New Testament to the book of 2 Peter and chapter number 2. 2 Peter chapter number 2. Today in in our study together, we're going to come to one of those New Testament chapters that is frequently avoided by people. It is one of those chapters that is rarely taught. It is a chapter that is highly confrontive. It's a chapter that has some rather harsh denunciation of false teachers. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 has some of the strongest language in all of Scripture. So it's, it's not the first section <laughs> you might seek out when you want a devotional time. And why is that? Well, I think candidly, one of the reasons why is that we don't really like to talk much about judgment at all. But I want to remind you of what's going on in 2 Peter from chapter 1 and verse 14. We learn that Peter is knowing he's going to be leaving this life very soon. He's going to be exiting from this world. And and so when you're getting ready to leave and you want to write a letter, you want to write the things that are most strategic, and that's what he's doing in 2 Peter. In fact, one-third of the final letter that he writes is a caution against false teaching. It has in it some stern confrontation and it often talks about the certainty of judgment that is to come. And so I think because it's his final communication, it's important that we lean in and hear what he has to say. In some ways, 2 Peter is a fighting letter. And he's saying, listen, false teaching is a clear and present danger. Eternal destinies are at risk. And Satan likes to create confusion around the message of salvation. Now, I think it's important to to recognize that never before in human history have we had the potential for greater exposure to spiritual deception and twisted truth than we do today. You know, most generations of the church did not have television and radio and books available to them. We've had all of those things for decades, but now you add in the internet and you add in social media and you add in podcasts and stuff. And the potential's never been greater to be exposed to false teaching. And I want us to understand that Peter is energized. He wants to confront any kind of teaching that is contrary to the word of God any kind of teaching that would contradict and add to the gospel. And what Peter wants to communicate to you and to me is it is actually possible for followers of Jesus to unwittingly embrace that which is wrong. Now we're starting this new series in 2 Peter chapter 2 that we have entitled Be Aware, False Teaching Ahead. The the first series that we did from 2 Peter was the one where we said it was entitled, Be Diligent to Grow. And uh, just to remind you of the way 2 Peter is laid out, chapter 1, number 1, deals with the cultivation of spiritual maturity, which is what we've already looked at. Chapter number 3, which we'll be looking at in the future, deals with confidence in Jesus' return. 
But chapter number two, which we have before us now, is caution about false teachers. There's an emphasis in this chapter on denunciation. The theme is that of heresy, and the focus is on our adversaries. Now, the title I've given to today's message is The Reality of Danger. And what I want to do is I want to read the first three verses of 2 Peter chapter 2, invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read. Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now, Basically, today's plan is to do four things. Number one, we're going to look at an examination of the first three verses of 2 Peter. We're going to then look at a present-day illustration of false teaching. Yes, there is false teaching in our day. Then we're going to look at two key questions. Then we're going to conclude by some life response as we spent time in God's Word. Sound like a good plan? Well, let's get started with it. First of all, an examination of chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now, as we begin to look at at this, you'll notice the first word in chapter 2 is the word but. You remember in the original, there were no chapter divisions. And at the end of chapter 1, in verses 20 and 21, he is talking about the reliability of God's word as it has been given through God's prophets. But then he begins chapter 2 with the word but. He says, but false prophets, not my prophets, but false prophets also arose among the people. And he's talking here about the pattern that happened in Old Testament history. And he says, just as there were false prophets among the people in the Old Testament, so there are going to be false teachers among you. And I want you to notice how he talks about how this is going to happen. He says it over and over again in these verses. In verse 1, he says, there will be false teachers. Don't don't think that that won't happen. He says, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Verse 2, he says that many in the church will follow them, and the way of truth will be maligned. It's going to happen. And then in verse 3, they will exploit you with false words. Now, this is just simply normal satanic strategy to distort the way of salvation. And as Pastor Mark took us through the book of Galatians over a number of months, we saw that coming up many, many times. Now, if you go to Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, the Apostle Paul meets with the Ephesian elders there, and he says to them, I want you to understand as leaders of the church that false teaching is going to originate from outside of the church. He also says that false teaching is going to originate from inside of the church. 
But either place it might originate from, he says, I want you to be alert to the fact it's going to happen. You need to expect that it will find its way among you as part of the church. Now, I want you to notice some of the phraseology here. In verse 1, it says that these false teachers will secretly introduce, that's the way the New American Standard reads, these things. The Net Bible says they will infiltrate. What an interesting picture, isn't it? This verb only happens one time in the New Testament. It's a verb that can mean the idea of smuggling, of creeping in, of being subtly subversive. Their desire to substitute human thinking for divine truth. To give us alternatives that sound like divine truth. But they often do that by redefining terms. The picture he's given is that teaching will come that is camouflaged in biblical-sounding clothing. And then he goes on to say, he says there in in verse 1, he says, they will bring destructive heresies. Why are they destructive? Because they deal with the issues of life and death spiritually. It's destructive because it's a distortion of God's truth. And he says in verse 2, many will follow. Many will be sucked into this false truth. They will have success, Peter is saying, in detouring people away from Christ and away from his truth. Now look at verse 2. He says, as a result... The way of truth will be, will be maligned. It will be discredited. It will be deformed. Now, this isn't fun stuff to talk about, but it's stuff we need to talk about. Verse 3, he says, They will exploit you with false words, with deceptive, forged terminology. It will be spiritual-sounding vocabulary, but they will be using a different dictionary. You know, I learned when I was in seminary a lot about that when it came to criticism of Scripture. Because there arose a group of people who would say, in answer to the question, is the Bible inspired? They would say, oh, yes. But they didn't mean inspiration the way it was classically understood. They meant, yeah, the Word of God is somewhere in the Bible. (laughs) You kind of got to go in there and throw out all the bad stuff, and eventually you'll sort of find that which is inspired. That's not really what God intended with that concept of inspiration, but... That's why it sounds like the same vocabulary, but they use different, different dictionary meanings. Now, here's what happens to us, I think, in the church. We often think false teaching, well, that, <laughs> that happened in a different era. I mean, that happened in the Old Testament. Uh, that happened, of course, in New Testament times when the apostles were running around. But, but it didn't really happen where I live. Or we think false teaching, that happens in some other place. But no, it has always been Satan's ever-present plan since Genesis chapter 3 when he said to Eve, did God really say this? It's always been his plan to have false teaching active in the world. So what we've done is we've just given a little bit of an examination an overview of the first three verses of chapter 2, what I want to do is I want to now talk about a present-day illustration of false teaching. 
Now, if you've been around Wildwood for a while, you know that there, in past years, we have taken on false teaching. For example, uh, we tackled the teaching that is out there called prosperity teaching, which says that it's God's absolute will for you to be healthy and wealthy. And we looked at that biblically. We've taken time to look at issues like marriage and same-sex issues, and we've examined that biblically. What I want to talk about now is a present-day illustration of false teaching is what is known as secular social justice worldview. Now, when you see that word worldview, you might ask, what does that really mean? What is a worldview? Well, a worldview is a lens through which we understand the world around us. And too often, many in the church are novices when it comes to understanding world views. What I want to do in the next few moments is I really want to compare and contrast this false teaching, which I'm calling Secular Social Justice Worldview, or SSJ for short, and the divine biblical worldview, or D-BIB, for short, for an abbreviation. So we're going to be looking at these things. So, so just, I know this sounds like a lot of detail, but it's important that we follow it in order to understand it. So we're going to look at the secular social justice worldview compared and contrasted with the divine biblical worldview. Now here's what I want you to understand about SSJ. Unapologetically, it is promoted as a replacement for the divine biblical worldview. They don't even stutter about that. It is a replacement for the biblical worldview, the Judeo-Christian worldview. So let's take a closer look at it. Okay, we'll go to school a little bit. When it comes to the culture's core fundamental problem, what do they both say? Well, secular social justice says that the core fundamental problem is cultural oppression, or what they would call white supremacy. They would say that the core fundamental problem is out there, it is social and it is institutional. What does the divine biblical worldview say? It says, well, the core fundamental problem in the culture is human rebellion, it's disobedience and ungodliness. The core fundamental problem is in here. It's in the heart. It is internal and it is personal. Now let's just expand on those differences for a moment. Culture's core fundamental problem, specifically what the secular social justice worldview says, the problem is just whiteness. It's white heteronormative males oppressing people of color, oppressing women, oppressing the LGBTQ plus community. That's the problem. That's the problem group. And notice they would say that all are so labeled regardless of individual personal character. It doesn't make any difference if someone has individual personal character. They're all part of the problem. And then, by way of some comparison specifically, the Um, The culture's core fundamental problem, according to the divine biblical worldview, is sin. Every human heart is darkened by sin, and all stand guilty before God. There's another all statement. They would say all are violators of God's righteousness and have no hope of self-rehabilitation. And then we make a note. We would say the biblical view would say, the biblical worldview is sin does not inhabit one ethnic group more 
than another. You know, sinful hearts left unconverted breed ungodly thoughts, desires, words, and deeds. Well, what is the solution to the problem then? Well, the secular social justice worldview would say that solution's found in the state. It's found in government. What we need is system change. The key word, revolution. Overthrow the oppressors. Eliminate all systems and institutions. Elevate victims, quote-unquote, to leadership. And redistribute resources from oppressors to the oppressed. Well, what's the solution on the divine biblical worldview side? Well, it says the solution to the problem is found in a living Savior. It's not system change, it's heart change. The key word is redemption, not revolution. It's heart transformation. And only God can change hearts and transformation comes through Jesus' work on the cross, which leads to changed lives and reconciled relationships. Well, how about the source of truth? Where is truth to be found? Well, in the secular social justice worldview, they would say that truth is found in the life experience of those oppressed. Truth is subjective. And there's a technical term for that. It's called standpoint epistemology. By contrast, the divine biblical worldview says that truth is found in divine revelation in the Bible. It's not subjective, it is objective, and there's a technical term for that. It's called biblical epistemology. How about this? Is forgiveness available? Well, the secular social justice worldview says there is none necessary for victims and none available for oppressors. How about the divine biblical worldview? I would say yes, forgiveness is available for all who repent and believe, as it says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Hang in there with me now. We're just trying to understand all of this. What about the emphasis of the two? Well, the secular social justice worldview has an emphasis on division. It stresses differences in class, race, gender, sexual orientation. Under that worldview, everyone is in two groups, the oppressed or the oppressors. In the divine biblical worldview, there is an emphasis on unity. Uh, It stresses diligence in maintaining unity, as it says in Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. And everyone is in two groups, either in Christ, rescued with a destiny of eternity with the Lord, or in Adam, lost with a destiny in judgment. What is the core tactic of the secular social justice worldview is to silence all alternative voices. And you may have seen some of this being promoted in our society now. In the divine biblical worldview, the core tactic is to be kind and graciously appeal to all, as it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. The ultimate outcome of these two worldviews Well, the secular social justice worldview says this, politically righting the wrongs of society will lead to a veritable utopia. Now, I have actually heard, I don't mean reading about it, I've heard people actually say that in our town. The ultimate outcome in the divine biblical worldview is only the return of the Lord Jesus Christ can right the wrongs of society and establish his kingdom of righteousness 
on earth. So, just a little bit of a summary of a current illustration of false teaching, present-day illustration. So we've taken a little look at those verses. We've looked at this present-day illustration, seen the contrast. I now want to ask and answer two key questions. The first key question is this. Why am I alarmed by this? Why does this get me going? Well, I have two answers for that. The first one is the origins and foundations of the secular social justice world view. We need to understand where this comes from. Now, as a backdrop to all of this, um, you know, my, my family background, my, my family heritage is being German. Uh, you could probably guess that from the, the last name of Hess. And also in my family line, we have the name Kinsey, which originally was Kinsey when they came over from Germany, K-I-N-T-Z-Y. Also in my family line, we have the Zimmermans. And so you can tell there's German there. That's my, my heritage. And many of you know that I am a seventh and eighth generation American, and, and my German ancestors came here a long time ago, and there was some real spiritual background in my family line. And so, in some ways, you know, I can feel good about my German heritage. On the other hand, some very damaging influences have come out of Germany. When I was going to seminary in the 1970s, one of the things we had to talk about was what was called higher criticism of the Bible. The higher critics are those who sought to undermine the supernatural nature of Scripture. They sought to undermine the reliability of Scripture. And what is interesting is that this whole school of thought of higher criticism came from, guess where? It came from Germany. And we used to say this, isn't it amazing that a group of dead Germans from the 1800s were having such an influence in the 20th century? And here we have many of the fathers of the higher critics from the 1800s. You had Ferdinand Bauer, you had David Strauss, you had Julius Wellhausen, you had Johann Eichhorn, and you had Ludwig Furbach. And so when it came to the whole system of false teaching about higher criticism, here we are, I was in the 1970s, and I'm dealing with a bunch of dead Germans from the 1800s who had an amazing influence on our culture. Now, many of you have heard about Marxism, And some of us who are younger, I think, don't really fully understand what Marxism is all about. But, of course, Marxism was developed by a guy by the name of Karl Marx. There's a picture of him there. Uh, He also was from the 1800s. And he developed this philosophy, which we call Marxism, that is totally a godless philosophy. And, And Marx originally developed what was often termed economic Marxism. And economic Marxism was what was utilized by the Soviet Union as after World War II, they took over all of these countries. Now, here's what economic Marxism, hang in there with me now. Okay, we're going somewhere. 
Economic Marxism basically said this. If you are part of the upper class, they call that the bourgeoisie, if you are part of the upper class, if you were a property owner, you were highly educated, or you were a business person, you were automatically the problem. You were automatically guilty. If you were part of the working class, what they call the proletariat, you were automatically innocent. Now, how did that actually work out in real life? Many of you know that I've been going to Latvia, which was under the thumb of the Soviet Union. I've been going there for three decades. And I've talked to a lot of people in Latvia. And you know what happened when the Soviet Union came in under economic Marxism? You know what happened to the upper class? No one was evaluated. What happened to you if you were part of the upper class is you were either marched out to a field or out to the forest and they put a bullet in your head. Or you were sent to prison camp or you were sent to Siberia and your business was destroyed if they didn't kill you and you were assigned to a menial job. What was their goal? Their goal was to physically eliminate people and thus silence them. Now what happened is the Soviet Union began to unravel and they knew early on it wasn't working very well. There were a group of people back in Germany who began to think, now why did this really fail? I mean, what was wrong? How could we rework all of that? And so a lot of thought was done at another place called the Frankfurt School in Germany and they developed cultural Marxism in the 1900s, and we have some of these guys, Herbert Marcuse, Eric Fromm, Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, and Walter Benjamin. And they adjusted Marxism into what they call now cultural Marxism. Now, it's important to understand, now, now all these guys are dead Germans again. But these are all secular humanists. And by the way, I have read thousands of pages on all of this stuff. And cultural Marxism is the heart of the secular social justice world view. And uh, if you're in the wrong group, if you're in the wrong group, cultural Marxism says that maybe you're not going to be physically eliminated and silenced, but we're going to socially eliminate you and silence things. Now, the heart of Marxism, I don't care what form it takes. The, listen here carefully. The heart of Marxism is to eliminate God completely from society. That's what Marxism is all about. And I would just say now, it is amazing to me that a group of dead Germans from the 1900s has such an influence in the 21st century. So the first question is, why am I alarmed? And that is the origins and foundations of this secular social justice worldview. Second reason why I'm alarmed is that the secular social justice worldview is defective and at the core diminishes and distorts the gospel. That is very, very significant. And the sovereign God always has taken the distortion of the gospel very seriously because it can affect people's eternity. 
Remember what it says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes and he says, Even if we preach or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached, he is to be accursed. That's very polite language. It basically says they are to be damned. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he or she is to be accursed. Again, the idea of being damned. God takes this very, very seriously. I'll give you an illustration. The Bible points to the cross and the blood of Christ for forgiveness. Secular social justice worldview says, no, you are guilty if you are in the wrong group. Parentheses, being white. You are guilty if you're in the wrong group, regardless of your character and actions. They would say you are responsible for past generations. No forgiveness available at all. Now that is completely contrary to God's standard. We see God's standard in Ezekiel 18.20. God says the son will not be punished for the parent's sins. And the parent will not be punished for the son's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. Listen, men and women, if you study out the secular social justice worldview, you will find that there is no creator there. There is no divine design for male and female and family. There is no savior there. There is no divine script for sexuality. There is no divine judgment of evil. And so it really creates a fallacy. I love the way that Owen Strawn put it. He says this, Jesus died, it seems, and destroyed the power of every sin, except the sins of being white or benefiting from whiteness, And he goes on to say, these wrongs only Marxism can address. Let me just summarize a little bit of what I think we've looked at so far. When you misdiagnose the problem, you can never ultimately solve the issue. So why are we dealing with this? Well, the first question we addressed is why I'm alarmed, and I've given you two reasons, but... Secondly, I want to bring up this question. Why is the church vulnerable to this? Why would we be vulnerable to the secular social justice world view? Well, it's because that we believe it's wrong to discriminate. We know that the Bible teaches us that we are to treat everyone justly and fairly. We we know what it says in Leviticus 19.15 where God instructs us as his followers. He says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. See, we understand those things. We know what it says in James chapter 2 and verse 9. It says there, if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law, God's law. 
And so naturally, when there's talk of justice, we want to lean into that. Now, now we, we must, again, admit, we, we know that historically there's been injustice inside of the United States of America. We don't need to delineate all of that. We know that there has been injustice inside of the American church historically. But here's the way we need to handle things. When and where there is a failure to be just, it should be openly acknowledged and repented of by the people who were guilty of doing it. The reality, men and women, is this. The secular social justice worldview is truly an anti-biblical worldview, and it is masquerading under the guise of social justice. Bodie Bachman does a great job of summarizing this, and I think this is really where we're at. He says, this ideology, the SSJ, has used our guilt and shame over America's past, our love for the brethren, and our good and godly desire for reconciliation and justice, here we go now, as a means through which to introduce destructive heresies. Yes, that's true. He goes on to say, we cannot embrace, modify, baptize, or Christianize these ideologies. We must identify, resist, and repudiate them. How true that is. We're warned in Colossians 2.8. He says this to the church. He says this to us. He says this to Christian leaders. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Here we go. Which depends on human tradition and the elemental forces of this world rather than Christ. In other words, we are not to be captured or become entangled with an ungodly worldview. Now, as we've covered a lot of material today, there's a lot of unaddressed questions and a lot of unaddressed issues. We could have a lot of discussion about all of that. And I want you to know that we plan to expand our biblical dialogue on this, which will happen near the turn of the new year, so you can watch for that to happen. But what I want us to do is, having looked at all this information and looked at this scripture today, is I want us to think about some, some life response that we can have. What does God want me to do? What does he want you to do? Well, I'm going to suggest three things. First of all, to be a Berean. In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, it says that the Bereans would examine the scriptures to see whether these things are so. In other words, don't just listen out there, but evaluate out there. Don't just automatically assume that something is good, but let's search the scriptures to see what it has to say about these things. Second life response is not only to be a Berean, but to be salt and light, right? I mean, injustice is real in our world. We just have sinful people. It's going to happen. And how am I to respond to it? Well, we are to love other people, as it says in Romans 13, 8 to 10, and chapter 12 and verse 21. We need to love other people. We need to exhibit humility. We need to do what God says, and that is we seek to overcome evil with good. And then secondly, as salt and light, we need to listen to other people, as it says in James 1.19. And so we should listen to people who may be of a different color or of a different ethnic group, and at least understand what they're saying. 
And if a law or a policy needs to change, we need to help seek to change that. We need to speak up if someone's being treated unfairly because of their skin color or their ethnicity. So we need to be a Berean, we need to be salt and light, and then thirdly, this one's really important to me, we need to be gracious and civil. Do you know how rare this is today? To be gracious and civil? You know, I have a uh, Twitter account, which I haven't really launched a whole lot, and I'm really thinking about shutting the whole thing down. And the reason why I'm thinking about shutting the whole thing down is, oh my goodness, what a dark world the Twitter world is. And the last thing you see in that world is people being gracious and civil. But God says that's what we are to be. Look at, look, look at this passage from 2 Timothy 2, verses 24, 25, and 26. It's a great reminder. He says, the Lord's bondservant, anyone who's following the Lord Jesus, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. How about this one? With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and I like this part, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That's what I need to be modeling. That's what all of us need to be modeling. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you we had this opportunity to see Peter's heart and his concern about false teaching leaking into the church, distorting the gospel, maligning the gospel, creating confusion, about what's really important. May we be men and women who live out 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24, 25, and 26. That we would live that out for your honor and for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 